Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you wish, I would put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's just bow our heads for a prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit. Help me to speak and give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. We can't control God. We can't keep God in a box. We can't bottle him up. And yet sometimes we try to. I I did very early on in my life of faith, if you like, because just after I came to faith... The one thing that I was desperate for, I was so excited, but the one thing I was desperate about was that I wanted my wife Kirsty to come to faith as well, because we hadn't been churchgoers, we hadn't been believers. And so I did all kinds of things I could to try and sort of get her to get it. I took her on alpha courses, I took her to churches, uh, I, I got her to read books, I tried to get her to read the Bible a bit, but nothing, it just wasn't happening. And so I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll take her to the place where I first had a powerful experience of God's presence in a little church in the north of South Africa. Because if I do that, God will do it again. He'll do it to her. And so I bought an air ticket for me and Kirsty and the children and booked some safaris and all the rest of it. We went off to South Africa. We had a wonderful holiday on safari. And we went to this little church in the bush. And you've guessed it. Nothing happened. We can't, God doesn't dance to our tune. We can't bottle him up and kind of make him do the same things. And there's a funny thing, there's a thing like that going on in this gospel story. Because um, uh, Jesus has, there's the picture of it. Jesus has taken the three closest disciples up the mountain, Peter, James and John. And this extraordinary thing happens that Jesus is, is, is bathed in bright light and then these prophets, Moses and Elijah, appear. And Peter's response is this. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. In other words, he says, this is great. Um, If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Well, what on earth was that about? It's a really bizarre thing to say. But Peter is trying to hold the moment. 
What are shelters about? Shelters are about permanence. You put up a shelter if you plan to stay somewhere. He wants this experience to go on and on. So he, says, he just blurts out, Jesus, I'll put up three shelters for you. Um, because he wants to capture the moment. He wants to bottle it. But God isn't like that. God is always moving on. He's always leading us places. He doesn't stand still. And sometimes we, in our, in our own lives of faith, we have these amazing moments with God. Just, they can be very quiet moments in, in silent prayer when we feel the sweetness of God's spirit. Or they can be quite dramatic moments where we have a sense of sort of uh, perhaps heat pouring through us or wind around us or whatever it is. We can have these moments with God. But we try to capture them because it happened during a certain song. So we try and play that song over and over to recreate it. Or it happened while someone was praying for me. And so I always go back to that person to try and make it happen again. We try and bottle God up. But he's not like that. So if God is so hard to pin down, what does this, what does this passage in the gospel say to us about these moments of meeting with God? Well, I think that there are some two or three points in the transfiguration, as this is called, um, that will help us to understand it. And the first thing is that the more I read this account of the transfiguration, the more I realize that it was a real physical event that actually happened on that mountain. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that, really. But Jesus takes his disciples up the mountain, and as I've said, Moses and Elijah all appear beside Jesus in this incredible sort of uh, experience. And Peter says, Lord, if it's good for us to be here, I'll build three shelters for you. The interesting thing is, Jesus doesn't respond to that suggestion by Peter. But if we read the other accounts, the two other accounts in Mark and Luke, something else happens after Peter says that. Peter says, let us put up three shelters. This is from the Gospel of Mark. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, just like in Matthew. But now the writer, there's a kind of a bracket, and the writer of the Gospel says, he didn't know what to say because they were so frightened. In other words, the writer's almost apologizing for Peter's rather ridiculous idea And then if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, you see something similar. Peter says, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then there's a bracket where the Gospel writer says, he did not know what he was saying. In other words, he was out of his mind. It was just just a a sudden idea that came to him. He blurted it out. It wasn't kind of deep and meaningful. So the only conclusion I can come to is that for years after this event, the other disciples used to pull Peter's leg about this this ridiculous comment he made on the mountain about building shelters. It's so real. It's amazing. It, It just comes to life. So that's the first thing. It's real. The second thing is that it it tells us exactly who Jesus is. His disciples have been with him for two years by this point, following his every move, seeing him do amazing miracles, calming a storm, healing people who are sick, all kinds of things. But the big question is, Jesus is clearly a powerful miracle maker. He teaches amazing things to people. But who is he? Who sent him? Where's he from? Where does he get his power from? And it's only six days before this event and it's earlier in the same chapter in Matthew, that for the first time, one of the disciples, in answer to Jesus' question, who do people say I am, says, you are the Messiah, 
the Holy One of Israel, the Christ. The one who, if you like, had been predicted. But even so, that was still just an opinion. But what the transfiguration did was to give physical living proof that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, the saviour of Israel, the saviour of the world. Why? Because of Moses and Elijah. That's what they're doing there. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus because they are the two greatest Old Testament prophets. Moses and Elijah were the only two people other than Jesus who met with God on a mountain. And so because of that appearance, we know that Jesus is the one predicted in the Old Testament, the one who will come to be the saviour of the world. They had living proof. And the disciples will need that living proof because not too many months later, Jesus will go to the top of another hill, but instead of being transformed into white, into brilliant white, he will have his clothes stripped and he'll be nailed to a cross. And they will need every ounce of faith they've got to carry on following Jesus. And so it's about Jesus' identity. It's about who he is. But also there's a purpose to it. Because what happens is that while they're on the mountain, a voice from God comes out of the cloud and it says, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Now that is what was spoken at Jesus' baptism. God speaks those words at Jesus' baptism. But here he adds three more. And those are, listen to him. Listen to him. And those three words appear in all three gospel accounts. Listen to him. Listen to him. So God is saying, this is who Jesus is. The Messiah, the saviour of the world. Listen to him. And if God says, listen to him, what, what, is, what has God, Jesus got to say to us in 21st century United Kingdom? Well, many, many things, and we can read about them in the Gospels, but there's a couple of things I want to pull out. Yesterday, some of us went to a conference at St. Lawrence's in Reading, and it was on church growth and, and a, a particular aspect that we're, we're involved in at St. Matthew's called Mission Action Planning. Many of you now are familiar with that phrase. But we were talking about the culture in this country, the spiritual culture. And there's a spiritual, and and, and the people speaking said there's a spiritual hunger in the country, even though a relatively small amount of people go to church. There's actually a wide spiritual hunger. And they quoted G.K. Chesterton, the author G.K. Chesterton, who said this, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they start believing in everything anything. When they don't believe in God, they start believing in anything. And do you know, there was an almost ridiculous example given, but apparently, relatively recently, um, Wookiee Hole, you know, uh, down in in Somerset, the the tourist uh, sort of place where there's the Cheddar Gorge and and Wookiee Hole, recently Wookiee Hole advertised for a witch to join the team who who would cast spells on the cheeses, the cheddar cheeses that they sell. Because they thought that would be a good tourist sort of gimmick, that you bought cheese that had had a, a spell cast over it. And here's a photograph of some of the applicants who turned up for the interview. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people responded to the job of being a witch. 
It's, it's amazing, isn't it? When people, when people stop believing in God, they start believing in anything. And, but there's a spiritual hunger. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He said, I'm the one who can come and fill that hunger. Bernard Levin, one of the uh, most famous uh, newspaper columnists of the 20th century, said, countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, together with such things as happy families, and yet lead lives of quiet and sometimes noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside them, and however much food and drink they pour into it, however many cars and mobile phones and gadgets and TVs they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edge of it, it aches. Robbie Williams wrote a song with the lyrics, I've got a hole in my soul. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who can come and satisfy that hunger. How is that? Well, he also said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And so he brings, he said, I'm the way. I'm the one who can bring direction to your life. So many people don't really have a purpose in their lives. Just understand life as trying to be comfortable or enjoy it or be happy, but but no direction. And Jesus says, I am the way. And he also says, I'm the truth. He brings clarity to a confused world looking for meaning. C.S. Lewis, the famous writer of of the Narnia books and so on, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Christianity is a statement, if you like, which, if false, is of no importance whatsoever, but if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And Jesus brings truth to a confused world. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the life. Most of all, Jesus came to set us free. Free from all of the wrong things in our lives, from the the, the, the bad stuff in our lives. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that evil... What he said was this. The line separating good and evil passes not through countries or between political parties or between races, but right through the middle of every human heart. That's where the dividing line between good and evil lies. And Jesus came to set us free from all of the dark stuff, the bad stuff. And the good news is, Jesus and and the gospel is good news, because God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us on the cross, to carry all our sins, all of the bad stuff in our lives, to take them away so that we could be forgiven and set free to be the people that he meant us to be. And God on the mountain says, that's who he is. Listen to him. So so how do we take that and, and kind of put it into practice? Well, Jesus said the two greatest commandments were to love God and to love one another, to love Others. And that means everyone. That means others. And so I think this Lent would be a really good time for us to take on these 40 acts of loving kindness. To decide every single day, every single one of us, to do a very specific act of loving kindness for someone else. 
let's just say roughly um, uh, adults and children, 100 plus people in St. Matthew's. If we all do 40 acts of loving kindness, I've already done the mathematics, it's 4,000 acts of loving kindness during the 40 days of Lent. Won't that make a difference to our, to our parish, to our families, to our schools? Won't that get noticed? Let's do that. Let's listen to him and let's take that on. Love God and love others during these 40 days of Lent. Amen.